everyone, and welcome to Turning a Moment into a Moment. I am your host, Jay Love, and I represent the Justice for Gerard movement. Gerard is my son who was wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't do, innocent, and he went to prison. Um, and because of that journey with Gerard, I met so many others that were innocent or had someone who are, were in their family that were innocent in prison. And so I realized there were so many Gerards. And upon um, learning all of that, that created this movement, the justice for Gerard, I mean, turning a moment into a movement. And so we come here on Fridays at 6 p.m. to talk about wrongful convictions and justice and community accountability, all of that to awaken us and bring us into awareness of what's going on uh, within our uh, communities and cities and states. And we're here not to force, you know, our opinions on you, but we come here on Fridays to get you to think. And once we get you to think, hopefully that, that uh, promotes you or push you into conversations. And from that conversation, um, we hope that you uh, take action. And whatever that action might be, we all have a place in this movement um, to do something to um, save each other. And so, welcome to turning a moment into a community, uh, into a movement. <laughs> I don't know why I can't say it today, but welcome. So today, we're going to do a little di something different. Um, is we don't have a special guest. It's just going to be all of us. Um, and I'm going to bring everyone in in a second, but we are here and we're going to talk about, you know, current events and also wrongful convictions. And so um, as we um, have these conversations, understand that a wrongful conviction can happen to anyone. It's no precursor or anything that will make you uh, eligible for a wrongful conviction. It can happen to anybody at any time. So that's why it's um, so urgent that we have these conversations and that we come together and educate each other about them so we can do what's necessary to stop innocent people from going to prison. So with that saying, I'm going to bring in the panto. Greetings, Revitia. Well, greetings. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I hear you excellent. Oh, wonderful. Listen, I've got some new uh new gadgets going here. And um, oh, okay. I don't know um quite how to maneuver, but I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm getting it together, Jay. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful to be here tonight uh for turning a moment into a movement and understanding that we are the ones that God is calling us into purpose. Yeah. And our purpose and who we are and what we're about, the full expression of who we are. And so I, I just ask people to dig deep. Uh, you know, it's besides ministering. Um, of course, I'm over at Transforming Love Community and, and we believe in transformation and I'm also on part of the G100 women and uh, helping the Michigan Social Justice Network, along with many other platforms as a behaviorist, um, getting ready to become a psychologist. But yeah, <laughs> all, all of that stuff. <laughs> <you soon. laughs> yeah, all of that <laughs> stuff. Listen, 
it means nothing because what what is most important is that i understand today that i am not a part of this world's narrative mm -hmm. i'm allowing my mind to be transformed and that's what turning a moment into a movement is i'm just asking people to listen to become engaged into the conversation and allow your mind to be transformed exactly yes Rabbitia. thank you so much jay you're doing thank great you work. thank you Rabbitia. oh i got to bring you Hey, Trisha. <laughs> oh my goodness, I miss y'all so much. Yeah, you doing it. You doing it. Oh my goodness, I am just so happy to see your smiling faces. Uh, so happy to be here with you. Look, this is more than just the name of a show. We are turning a moment into a movement. And we need everybody to join in. My name is Trisha Duckworth. I'm executive director of Survivor Speak, the lead consultant at Value Black Lives. But most of all, I'm just a warrior for justice. Um, and out here in the trenches. Um, and that's where I beg that you come to. See, we try to make decisions for us and folks try to make decisions for us without us. And see, the decisions need to be made in the trenches, right? Because the people that need help the most, see, those are the ones that are closest to the answer, closest yeah. to the solution. So for me, I'm excited to be in the trenches and I challenge each and, each and every one of you to get there too. If you're not in the trenches, especially if you're into activism, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing the community a disservice. It's mm -hmm. from the, the bottom up. It's not from the top down. We're taking control. We're taking back justice. And we hope mm -hmm. you'll be a part of the fight. Yes. Yes, Trisha. Yeah. Yes, we are. Thank you. Look who else is here today, you guys. Hey, Allie. Woo! <laughs> Allie! Allie! Oh my Hi. Gosh. Hey, it's good to see you. Welcome. <laughs> How yeah. are you? I am good. I'm good. It's good to and see you. Some busy days. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, my name is Alexandria. I'm a community activist in the metro area. I'm really working to make change, positive change pertaining to criminal justice um, and also uh, having to do with mental health. Those are where my passions are. I work in the behavioral health industry. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be breathing, happy to be, uh, you know, doing what I can and, and seeing some of these changes come to life. So I want to keep right. doing it. And you've been so busy. I've been yeah. seeing you. Yeah. Speaking on I different think, platforms. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot going on. The weather's warming up and, you know, uh, everything is happening now from right. Things of Michigan liberation and, and uh, care not criminalization campaign is taking off, so supporting that. Mm -hmm. um, and then also from doing things with people in Jackson, organizers in Jackson, it's a uh, lot to be done, but um, yeah, just glad to be able to do it. I'm so glad you are too. <laughs> Thank you, Allie. Okay, here we go, you guys. Hey. Yeah. What? <laughs> 
wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, yes. Hi, Berica. Can you hear us? Because we can't hear you. Yes, I can hear you guys. How are you all doing? We're great. How about yourself? Great. It's good to be um, back here with you guys. I know I took a, um, a leave of absence here, <laughs> but uh, there's really no leave of absence from um, a quest for justice. That's right. Uh, so we appreciate you guys holding it down here on um, turning a moment into a movement. Uh, the moment ain't over with, and uh, most definitely the movement is not over with. This is a continuous uh, movement. Mm -hmm. And thank you guys for um, allowing me to take and uh, be here this evening. Yay, we miss you. Thank you yes. for, thank you for you joining guys. us. Yes. And thank and, you. And last but not least, hi, Attorney Hugo Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Peace and oh, love, Boy, boy, you know what? This is a class reunion right here. I yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the see? whole squad is in the house. Right, that's right. Well, look, before I continue, I remember seeing a movie called I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, you know? <laughs> I heard a man named Bernie Casey say, every superhero has a theme song, right? So I just wanted to play a few little stanzas of my theme song for today, which I and Jay's cousin Al hooked up together. So I hope, I hope, hope, hope y'all can listen to this. That's all of us on the phone for justice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah see? And so we're talking about how we can make it right. So That's right. You know, yes. I'm going to cut the theme song off before Al Green try to sue me for royalty. <laughs> I'm, I'm play, playing that hookup. But, you know, J-Love, from time to time, I'll be having a superhero theme song on for myself and by extension for all of you because mm -hmm. y'all are superheroes. You really are. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and so we we end this in together. My name is Hugo Mack. I consider myself to be the people's lawyer. Well, why do you say that? Because I'm the only lawyer in Washington County office hours from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. See, so <laughs> with my clients, like I said, my clients don't drive over the bridges. They live under the bridges, okay? My clients are people you walk across the street to avoid. You know, the street people, the hustlers, all those people. Um, marginalized by society. So mm -hmm. for me, it's an honor to be here in the arena. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike others, I didn't parachute from heaven to be with you. I came up from hell to be with you, you know? So yeah. um, I know what God has for me for the rest of the time that I'm blessed uh, to be in this realm. You see what I'm saying? So so I'm here, former candidate of Washington County prosecutor attorney, believe in restorative justice and fairness, uh, the elimination of mass incarceration, and addressing wrongful conviction, a plague on our society. Um, through my own sojourn through the criminal justice system, I met dozens, dozens of men who mm -hmm. I know inside my heart either should not be there or have been there too damn long, okay? Mm -hmm. So, so we, we have a problem, not only the wrongfully convicted, but the overly convicted, the mm -hmm. overly convicted, and addressing the stigma that carries somebody from the penitentiary. 
It'd be mm -hmm. one thing if a person, quote unquote, served their time, was fully reintegrated back into society and not carried that, that letter of conviction with them. But that's not the way society works. People cannot get jobs. They cannot get educational opportunities. Um, they can sometimes can't, can't get housing, financial assistance because of a record that follows them. And the law does not have mandatory expunction. A small thing is happening with that now legislatively, a small thing, but far too many people are shackled um, mm -hmm. with the past when they fully, fully paid their debt. So um, I'm glad to be a part of the forum, glad to see everybody again. And so uh, I'm energized, ready to go. And Jay Love, with you, it is love and happiness. You know, Al, you got that right. <laughs> yes, uh, Tony, who go back? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> what a uh, superhero uh, thing. So it's going to be in the back of my head now. <laughs> Thanks for that. So today, you guys, I. Um, I sent you guys all a message. I, I don't think I sent it to Edward because I just talked to him. And first of all, I'm just so happy that Edward is here because last week he was sick with COVID. So I'm glad that he's doing better. Me too. So um, I saw um, 2020. They did this um, last Friday for those who want to, who's listening, mm -hmm. who want to look at it or who might watch this later. You can watch it on demand on 2020. Mm -hmm. It was called Gone Before the Storm. And it was about a wrongful conviction of a 12-year-old. Mm -hmm. First of all, a wrongful conviction of a 12-year-old yeah. already, you know, is gut-wrenching. Mm -hmm. But this wrongful conviction of a 12-year-old was a murder of a five-year-old white girl, which was already horrific. The way this um, little girl died, someone stabbed her like, you know, 10, 11 mm -hmm. times. Um the community because i think it was a really small town mm -hmm. but the community all went out to look for this little girl and the next day they found the little girl in an area where they had everyone had looked at somebody mm -hmm. placed her body there mm -hmm. and so the, the story goes on to uh how they picked out this little boy that was 12 years old little black boy um how they interrogated him with his mother, his mother was there, but she wasn't in the room. And um, through this interrogation, although the little boy uh, was, you know, always saying that he didn't do it, he didn't do it, he didn't know nothing about it, they end up, he ended up uh, confessing. And so um, he actually served a year or two in, in juvenile, um, mm -hmm. in a juvenile facility. And so now this kid, he's a grown man, adult man, and um, he won a million dollars, a couple of million dollar lawsuits. But the part that really got to me was um, how they interrogated this kid. Mm -hmm. And they were discussing, um, part of the discussion was about how police officers are trained to do this in a way that you will confess. And um, like the kid didn't even have, stand a chance to, you know, not um, um, get through this unscathed. And so it just brought up again for us the conversation about wrongful convictions, how mm -hmm. easy they can happen. 
They can happen to 12-year-old kids. They can happen to 50-year-old men, women, children, anybody, you know. And so I really want to bring that point today of how easy that can happen. And it can happen to anyone. This kid wasn't a bad kid, never been in trouble. He was a great kid. His mm -hmm. mother was a great mother. But, and I know, uh, Attorney Hugo, Matt, you could probably uh, attest to this. Once they figure out or point the finger at you, there is no stopping the train of convicting you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was no stopping it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go Absolutely. ahead, I, I can just say this from my years of working as a juvenile public defender. You know, there was a particular detective uh, named Joe Hall, worked for the sheriff's department, a black, black man, you know. And uh, Joe and I liked each other, but we were never friends, mm -hmm. you see, because what, what, what Joe Hall, and I, I've told his children this, he's gone on now, uh, no longer with us in this realm, but he had an, a, an ability, looked like, like somebody's grandfather, somebody's grandfather, somebody's uncle, okay? And he had the ability to sit down with criminal suspects, juveniles, as uh, okay? And he had the ability to talk to them outside of their parents' presence, and even with their parents' presence, and get them to believe you will feel so much better once you tell me what happened. You will feel so much better. And he developed an uncle, granddaddy, sort of relationship with them. And when them kids say, no, I don't know nothing about it. Well, now, you know, I know you say that, but I don't think your conscience is going to let you keep saying that. That continue talking and talking and talking. And juveniles, young people, have an innate desire to want to please authority figures you know when when we were all in elementary school coming up there was a teacher and all of us knew even though there were 30 students and one teacher we knew who was in charge that was a teacher and you know our goal was to please people in superior positions to us that have oversight over us same thing with policemen when i was growing up you know we would have police coming to the schools and with the uniform and the badge and talk about respect for law. So I understand growing up in Ann Arbor that indoctrination that goes on, but the problem is what parents have been neglectful in understanding is when police talk to you, it is never a friendly conversation. It is never ever a friendly conversation. It might be a conversation between a hawk and a pigeon, okay? You know, about, hey, what's up? How, how you feeling today? You all right? But don't get too close. Don't get too close. Okay. So the problem that, that I ran into so many times was even with the parents giving consent to the for the child to talk to the police, thinking they're really helping the child, waiving their right to an attorney being present. They weren't helping little Johnny or Kadisha at all. What they were doing is memorializing statements that can, will, and was, was used against them in a, in a, in a, in a court of law. So, so Jay Love, I'm going to summarize by saying this in panel. The problem that we have is only the black child is the black parent, okay? And, 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 and you know, most parents want to teach their kids to obey the law and to be law-abiding. And so they go in telling their kids in front of the police, now you tell them the truth now. You tell them the truth now. I, I didn't raise you to lie. Well, mama, daddy, Medea, 
give that lecture to that little boy or little girl when you're at the police station. Please don't give that lecture to them right now and have them confess to something they may not have done simply to try to, try to please an authority figure. Exactly. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that was brought up doing the film, how this boy was um, taught to respect authority and respect police. Mm -hmm. And so they considered that to be one of the downfalls because like you said, he was trying to please them. He, he was a good kid, you know, and he thought he was doing the right thing. And then that right thing turned into a wrongful conviction. So um, go ahead, Ravatia. We can't yeah, hear we you. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was going to say that, the, and they've done so many studies on this, that it's the unethical, <laughs> unethical interrogation leads to false convictions. It is not, it's not as if they don't know. The problem is they have not done anything to resolve it. Mm-hmm. And like, um, like attorney Mac was saying, talking about that, you know, the training, they're trained to do that. They are trained to, to investigate a certain way. The training, the training of interrogation is antiquated mm-hmm. and, and it's, it is inhumane to the point to the point that just to let you know it is unethical for just talking about wrongful convictions i just want you to see the whole the whole light it is now unethical for psychologists and professionals to be drawn into interrogative processes for international problems, for international crimes. It is unethical for psychologists and all other professionals to be drawn into that conversation or into interrogation for international crimes. Why? Because they said that the practice is unethical. Because why? Because that professional may be prompted or may feel coerced to go alongside with the the person who's doing the interrogation, whoever the officers are. Now, mind you, this is for international crimes, but domestic, free for all. It is a free for all for domestic. So we are more policed interrogated and prosecuted than those who come into the United States. The citizens, there are no, there's no protection for us. We gotta know that. 
Anybody else? I think the important point too is uh, like all of it is to feed the machine, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, officers, what they operate under is, you know, that they, they operate under their training, you know, the rules and regulations and all of that. But think about how outdated those are and how they constantly remain that same way and how there is no way to hold them accountable to doing these wrong things. So for them to do the right thing, is it's not rewarded. And, um, you know, when you think of the logic of a prison, of, of correction facilities and, and um, institutions that incarcerate, it says who did it and how do we punish them? It doesn't say how do we heal them? How do we make victims whole again? Even when those people, when people are incarcerated, the victims aren't even made whole again. They don't feel whole. There's still a, a the feeling of hurt and harm is still within them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, regardless of training, it's just, I mean, they're incentivized to, to feed the machine. So why wouldn't they? Right. I think about Central Park Five. I was watching that movie and I heard the man say, you want to go to jail or you want to go home? I, um, I want to go home. I'll do whatever you say so I can go home. We're talking about kids, right? Again, we're talking about police officers that are lawless. I don't know about anybody else, but I am tired of lawless police departments. And it's not just one and here and, oh, this bad apple theory. No, it is a mindset of policing agencies that continue to do the same thing over and over again. And it has to be true because if, if it were not true, we wouldn't see wrongful convictions everywhere. We wouldn't see these things happen. You know, when we see the killings and the shootings, this isn't just an isolated area. Mm -hmm. It's happening all across the country. So I'm here to ask, where is our protection? I mean, I'm sorry, President Biden. You came in and with one stroke of a pen, you could have passed that George Floyd bill, but you passed it on down to Congress. No, mm -hmm. Senate was going to do nothing but stall it and sit on it. We have no protections. And because we've been rocked to sleep, we don't understand how to introduce legislation ourselves, but I'm here to tell you, we ain't got to wait on them to introduce legislation. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is find you somebody that know how to write that stuff up, slap it on a petition, make sure that it's legal and get some signatures and we can get it on a ballot ourselves. We have to stop waiting. But yeah. folks, they're not coming. They're not coming to save us. They're not gonna do nothing. We have to take the initiative to get things done because our youth are suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. I think about Devontae Sanford. I think about, I mean, it's, it's many names of youth that have been incarcerated that should not be there. But it's not just happening to you. It's happening to everybody. That's why we're here today to talk about wrongful convictions. It has to stop. But the onus is not on them. You asking an abuser to stop abusing when they're caught up <laughs> with the 
pattern of doing that. So they're not going to stop. We have to stop them. So my question to you is, are you going to jump on board? Are you going to be a part of the movement? Are you going to put your hands to the plow? Because we need all hands on deck. And if you're not going to be with this all hands on deck movement, I come to serve you notice you are part of the problem. Exactly. Edward. Yes, um, in, 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 in light of what many of your panelists done said, uh, we had recently read here in Detroit, um, Yusuf um, um, Salam was here and he shared his personal experience as one of those um, young kids in, um, in, in New York in the park that had been arrested falsely. Uh, he shared with us the experience that both him and his mother went through. And um, like Hugo Mack was taking and making reference to, and um, Tia was making um, reference to in terms of false confessions. They are trained to take and solicit a confession out of you, true or false. They are trained to take and do that. And uh, <clears throat> Celine, uh, um, Dr. Celine, who one of these young men is today, he's a doctor today. And um, he shared with us that his mother, during the interrogation, she pointed out to him that they need your participation. Whatever they're doing right now, they need your participation. And she took and instructed him, don't participate. <laughs> don't participate. That's what uh, Yusuf um, Salam said that his mother told him while he was going through that interrogation. I'll say this also. I know it's very unlikely that I get anyone um, or too many that's on this um, post to take and do any reading. So I'm a reference, a recording artist, um, an artist that has been identified as the grandfather of modern rap. And that's Gil Scott Heron. Mm -hmm. Gil Scott Heron recorded uh, um, a song um, that's called um, No Knock, No Knock. And in that song, as Gil Scott always did, his 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 lyrics um, really critiqued it. It was a social commentary on uh, on the life that we all live. <clears throat> and he didn't record his music for the purpose of commercialism. So you may not recognize his name as you do um, those of many others in terms of someone that had been around since the uh, um the mid and late 60s and that continued <clears throat> throughout the early 2000s <clears throat> with the same type of messages uninterrupted because it wasn't about commercialism it was about speaking to you and me and in that one particular song that he does about um no knocking he goes through the history <clears throat> all the way back to richard nixon and others who came up with this this policy of no knock where they were taking break in your door um, without any requirements uh, or taking in and knocking just throwing the constitutional amendments out of the door and that's what i was making reference to about i wouldn't be able to get anyone to take and look or read um what constitutional amendments i'm talking about but in any case i'm referencing the constitutional amendment um, of your right, of every American's right to be secure in their homes, 
and in their personal effects. The government has a duty to take and respect your rights in your privacy. But because we have a government that is politicized, that particular right, which is normally used to violate primarily black and brown people's constitutional rights, it has very little value in our judicial system. It doesn't have the same weight of the Second Amendment, which is a right that has that's on steroids because it protects uh, white people who perceive, not who is threatened, but who perceive they are threatened by some boogeyman that they need military um, weaponry in their homes, their business, in the community, everywhere. So the Second Amendment is on steroids. They overprotect the rights to bear arms, even to the extent that the court doesn't take, the, 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 the U.S. Congress doesn't take and consider the dangers that are faced in public places, like in the schoolhouses, where children are being mowed down with military weapons. And the reason that they don't look at that, again, is because they are taking and trying to protect the rights of a, of a minority white race that has an artificial sense of insecurity. But in, in a real world where we have constitutional rights that's supposed to protect our rights in our privacies, in our homes, in uh, uh, our personal effects, etc., even being questioned or interrogated by any government official, those rights that would normally take and say that those type of tactics are to be excluded from a courthouse is not excluded because our judicial system see things through black and white. And the closest I can bring you to it, because any uh, uh, explanation that I would give you would be pretty much uh, um, a lecture that you might find to be, um, you know, too too wordy. So I would just encourage you to start with listening to the lyrics of Gil Scott Heron, No Knock, No Knock. Please listen to that song. And thank you. All right. Seeing that you said that, we're going to listen to it. Um, we want to do a poem for one of our unfavorite people, um, who's now the head of the uh, Nixon campaign. He was formerly the attorney general named John Mitchell. Um, Nixon's campaign seems to be out, you know, getting off on a rather hip foot after his trip to China in the name of peace uh, while they were killing people right across the street, so to speak, in uh, North and South Vietnam. But um, no knock, the law in particular, was allegedly um, <laughs> legislated for black people rather than, you know, for their destruction. And it means simply that authorities and members of uh, the police force no longer have to knock on your door before entering. They can now knock your door down. It's no knock. to me, I must admit, but just for the record, you were talking shit. Long rap about no not being legislated for the people you've always hated in this hellhole that you, we, call home. 
the man will say to keep that man from beating his wife. No knock, the man will say, to protect people from themselves. No knocking, head rocking, into shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. No knock. No knocks on my brother Fred Hampton, bullet holes all over the place. No knocks on my brother Michael Harrison, jammed a shotgun against his skull. For my protection, who's gonna protect me from you? The likes of you, the nerve of you, to talk that shit face to face, your tomato face, deadpan, your deadpan, deadening another freedom plan. No knocking, head rocking, into shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. But if you're wise, no knocker, you'll tell your no knocking lackeys, ha, no knock on my brother's head, no knock on my sister's head, no knock on my brother's head, no knock on my sister's head, and double lock your door, because soon someone may be no knocking, ha, ha, for you, no knock, to be slipped into John Mitchell's suggestion box. So, um, we connect for lunch. All right. So that was, um, <laughs> I just happened to have that, Baraka. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, we, we were talking about that because we're still having this uh, a couple of weeks ago. We're still having this same no-not conversation. That was 72. This is 2022. We still the same conversation, um, different time, same thing. Um, also, something I wanna piggyback off of what Shashay um, said earlier, and this is from Brian Stevenson. And you know, I've said this before, everybody wants to think that if they were alive during slavery, they'd be an abolitionist. Everybody wants to think that if they were active during the time of lynching, they'd be rallying against and trying to prevent lynchings. Most of us believe that if we were alive, in, in a position to march in the 1950s would be on the side of Dr. King. But today we're in the face of all of these problems. One in three black male babies is expected to go to jail or prison. Uh, there are these constant unarmed shootings, shootings of unarmed black people. And the question is, if we're not prepared to respond to these issues, if we're not prepared to act today, then I don't think we can claim that we would have acted any differently during slavery and lynching and segregation. So that consciousness for me is critical to creating our institutions, not just the press, but our courts, the police, law enforcement, our elected officials, uh, to think differently about this continuing legacy of bias and discrimination that manifests itself all the time. Yes. So, mm. Trisha. <laughs> you know, I, I transparent moment for me. I get so frustrated because people are like, oh, you're always saying something. Oh, you come from a place of trauma. Oh, can we just all be kind to? No, no, no. If being kind means that I am not going to stand up, I am not going to speak out, then I don't want to be kind. Now, I didn't mean that literally. Y'all know that I'm a very kind person, <laughs> but I don't play. When it comes to justice, I don't play. I don't care who it is. You can look like us. You cannot look, you could be purple, red, green. I don't care what color you are. If you in the way of justice, if you in the way of black liberation, we gonna bulldoze over top of you, period, point blank. It's time out for the sideline jaw jaggers talking loud, but ain't doing nothing. 
See, a lot of this stuff, it's on us. I talked about this this morning in my inspirational talk on my walk. We have gotten too comfortable, right? The civil rights legislation, we was like, oh yes, we got legislation. Well, what does that mean? Because the behavior did not change. See, we get so caught up with symbolism. We get so caught up with these moments of uh, what I like to call um, symbols and signs. And But where's the meat? Where's mm-hmm. the substance? Because I don't see no substance. You can miss me with all the performative things, right? If you're not going to follow up with the action. Now, I don't mind performative things when it comes to, you know, we did a Black Lives Matter uh, mural. That's performative, right? The street got changed. That's performative, right? But we keep building. We keep growing. We keep going. If all you're doing is performing and it want to clap at the end, you need to go sit down somewhere mm. because you are doing an injustice to your people, an injustice to this movement, and we are tired. We are tired. Oh. We, we're just tired. Let me be quiet because I can go on and on. But we're tired. And that's what basically uh, what Brian Stevenson said. He was saying that, you know, how people say, well, if I was this, if I was there in slavery, you know, I wouldn't, I would have did this and that. And if I was there doing, but you're here right now. And what are you doing? What are you saying? What are you standing up for? Go ahead, Allie. Yeah, I was, um, apply both Patricia's comments also what he was saying because that comfort thing is real and you know he talked about um you know the legacy the continuous legacy of discrimination and racism and how it continued and we have to think about how it's continued we have to be real about how it continued and part of that is the being comfortable thing you know you had uh Malcolm X back in the day and Martin Luther King, and they could very well exist today. They exist today through all of us, of course, but think about why they existed. You think about Malcolm X in the North and the false and the lies and and everything that was presented to us to say that we were integrated. We weren't. It was a false uh, version of being integrated. Then you think of Martin Luther King, that wasn't even possible in the South. And you think of how blunt the South is today, still blunt about everything they don't like in terms of policy, very clear. You think about the North, you think about Michigan, Chicago, all of that. It isn't as blunt and in your face, but it is still aggressively attacking us. Mm-hmm. It's just sweeping it under the rug. And we can't be complicit and sit around and allow it. That is how it keeps going. How does How else does it keep going? Because of things like the filibuster. You think of when the filibuster was first used. It was used on the 1957 Civil Rights Act and then tried to be used again on the 1964 Civil Rights Act to block both of those. What came after that? The Immigrations Act. So I say that because it doesn't just affect Black people. Those things affect Black and communities of color. Mm -hmm. And they continuously try to use this to block things whether voting rights, whether our civil rights change to the police, whether women's rights, all these groups are minority groups. So it's either get on board or, or completely become stripped of your rights and your freedom. And I don't want to be stripped of my freedom. Oh, that's right. I know that's right, Allie. 
And and when we have these conversations, we and when we're talking about this is also why wrongful convictions keep happening. Because we see these exonerations after exoneration. I'm like overloaded with exonerations, right? But we we so numb. We just normalize really people, innocent people going to prison. Like, how do we normalize that? How are we not <laughs> running in the streets? Like, come on, not another one. And then we, and like one of you guys said earlier, I think it was you, Ali. It's not just a Michigan thing. It's not just a New York or Chicago. It's all over the United States. So it is not a, it's a mindset. It's a culture. And all of that needs to be changed. And when we talk about, we, I hear people talking about reform and I think about reform what? You know, reform means we want to take something out of, you know, and fix it and because we like it and we're going to tweak it. But I don't want to tweak nothing. All of this stuff is antiquated and it needs to go. And so we have to think a different way. We, because when you, and I'm going to show you guys this video I, I just got from Lisa Riley um, right before we came on. When we think uh, it's okay, um, violence is okay with police and violence is okay in prison, that manifests into violence outside of us. Nothing about violence is healing. Nothing, nothing. And so we continuously live in a cycle of violence. So we have to change the cycle so the cycle can stop. But if all we see is violence and all you send somebody into a violent space and place, what do you think you're going to birth more of? More violence, more harm, more hurt, because nothing is changing. That's all people know. So they re, we are product of our environment. Attorney Hugo, Matt. Well, I mean, and that's true. And once again, it comes back to when you have sentences, sentences that go on, there is a sentence that is not published. That is a sentence that carries you after you've served your time. Mm -hmm. It's not published. And right. so that's why I've been an advocate for when sentencing go on. All right. That's why, you know, my position is uh, for prosecutors to not go for that quote unquote highest variable in the offense. I mean, because as, as all of you know, there's a lot of leeway in the law and prosecutors have a tremendous amount of discretion, a tremendous amount of discretion on on what on what to charge. So my philosophy which I pushed in my candidate county prosecutor is I'm not only going to factor in what my options are in charging that person, I'm factoring in what are the collateral consequences that will follow that person when they get out. You see, because the more collateral consequence a person has when they get out of prison, that is pushing them a little further down that recidivism role. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's pushing them a little, encourage them a little bit more, a little bit more because they cannot break that cycle. You see what I'm saying? So that that is the problem that, that we have with far too many prosecutors that are either trying to put a feather in their cap to 
run for governor or, or, or whatever, senator, you know, and police officers that are trying to get that promotion to captain to be able to get that good pension, you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or that increase. And the way they do that is what? Is by convictions, by showing they're slamming people, by showing they're out there, they're, they're, they're tough, quote unquote, on crime. And let me say this thing here. One thing that discourages me so much and is so disappointing is when I look at these candidates for these judges, and I'm talking about from the district court judge, you know, in, uh, in, in like uh, Washtenaw County or the other county, all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. By and large, when you look at these campaign for these judges, they all sound like they're running for sheriff. They sound mm -hmm. like they're running for sheriff. I was so disgusted with the last cycle in terms of the uh, Michigan Supreme Court hearing a, a candidate talk about, you know, I have upheld more convictions, you know, than, than my opponents. I've supported longer sentences. Well, you know what? That might help get you elected, but a damn sure ain't going to make you safe for getting out your car going in your home at night. You see, mm -hmm. so it's, not, it's not doing that. So we have to start looking at the long game, you know, when we confront these judges and these practical candidates as to what their philosophy is in terms of crime, punishment, and restorative justice. Right. I was listening to uh, someone got a hundred years. They were sentenced a hundred plus 70 years. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell they get the extra 70 for? <laughs> What what he ain't gonna live past a hundred if he make it that far. Yeah. But it's it's a thing to show people this is for not for him or not to make the system better, that's to make you look tough. Like I gave him a hundred plus seventy years. Like you you what? I mean, these things is just crazy, and we don't there's no standard in sentencing. There is no nothing. They just give people all kinds of crazy, ridiculous, you know, so over here you might get 10 years and over here you'll get 100, you know. So, I mean, this stuff is crazy. But we have to, like, really, we've been brainwashed. We're in the matrix. We're just stuck into the narrative and the programming of what they say. And we think that, oh, he kind of, that mm -hmm. that's making us safe, but not that it's not. It's, I mean, mm -hmm. the studies have proven it. You can give people 170 years and that is not stopping crime. <laughs> so it's not working. What stops crime is more resources. Community Thank you. Poverty right. will continue. If there's no community resources, poverty will continue and then poverty breeds harm. I'm not gonna say crime because that's a social construct and it depends on who creates it. So I'm gonna say harm. There's people here that can't eat, but we send in 40 billion to Ukraine. Yes. Help we got money somebody. for war, but can't feed the poor. Ain't that what pops <laughs> Yes, yes. So <laughs> When people can't eat, what do you expect them to do? Mm -hmm. but they and, and you know what? That's a narrative, too. Yeah, That's a narrative, too. Yeah. And, and we got to ask ourselves, who's doing the study on that? Right. Because we will accept the study. And it's, this is what gives me. We accept a study through the eyes mm. <laughs> of the colonizer. Of the, of, of right. The right. Yes. That's like, 
Okay, I'm I'm going to have the rapist mm. be the therapist. Mm. The, the, we are looking through the eyes of implicit biases as they do the study. And they have studies that have proven that those who do the studies are going to end up with whatever they're looking for according to their perception. Exactly. Come on, somebody. Oh my yeah, God. No, that's right. <laughs> you know, so and then I, you know, I put on there that United States, you know, killing is a norm. Yeah. And we gotta ask ourselves, have we succumbed to this norm? Yeah. You know, and and again, United States practices targeted killing. Mm-hmm. Nobody says nothing about it. Exactly. So the criminals, the criminals are now the police. Mm. Not mm. all of them. No, okay, so don't don't y'all say, you know, Reverend T has said the police, all the police are criminals. <laughs> no. My son is a police. <laughs> Love my son. And I know that we're gonna need people at the table in those positions mm -hmm. but i know for sure he's not trying to chase nobody down i know this because i raised him mm -hmm. right and, and so you know we we gotta we gotta start with us right and change that narrative in our homes and then be active in the community, but don't accept it anymore. Exactly. You know, and, and I'm at the point now where fear of living, I'm not fear, you know, fear of dying. Mm -mm. Living cannot be living if we have to live like this. That's right. And we have too many people, too many people who are living like this. And we're not saying, I am your brother, my brother's keeper, I'm my sister's keeper. Mm -hmm. We're not coming together because, you know, we've, <laughs> we're looking elsewhere. Right. We, we're focusing elsewhere. We're, we're grasping whatever narrative is going on right now like Trisha just said egos yes Trisha that's it we're wrapped up and tied up and entangled in all this other stuff be not conformed to this world mm -hmm. but be transformed by the renewing of your mind mm -hmm. that you may prove what is good acceptable and perfect will of God not yes. all this other stuff you better preach up in here tonight I know that's what I remember too <laughs> I'm about to take off running. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Reverend <laughs> That I can appreciate when theology takes on a social um, justice message. <laughs> and um, um, it's like there's been an absence of that since Dr. King. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me share this. Let me share this take, if I may. <clears throat> Remember, the number of people that are uh, uh that comes out of our prisons into our society 
the numbers equal that of a nation within mm -hmm. a nation. Okay, and in fact, there's a grassroots organization that actually refer to themselves as a nation outside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because they are a, a group of formerly incarcerated people, and I I, I kind of admire that reference. And um, not only do we have enough people that comes out of our prisons that equate that of a nation but even that of our county jails. Mm -hmm. The people that evolves in and out of our county jails, their numbers equate that of a nation. And the purpose of me referencing this, um, these numbers is to take and make mention of this. Um, for those of you, for those of us who belong to one of these two major political parties, remember that that nation that's evolving in and out of these county jails and in and out of these state and federal prisons, these are peoples that are literally evidence. These are subjects of your policy experiments. They are subjects of your policy experiments. For you to take and look and listen to their stories with horror as though it's not part of the policies that you supported is um, some form of um, amnesia. It's selective amnesia. These are your policies, whether you belong to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or where, or whether at some point your policies got, you know, mushed together like an Oreo cookie. And that happened before too. We know that um, one political party, um, and I, I'm not really using this to take and grab names, but there was one political party where the fellow took and grabbed the ideology of the other party and just simply put his name on it and got himself reelected. <laughs> but my point that I'm trying to make is that when those men and women come out, you do a disservice to them to pretend to take and find a solution without acknowledging that you were part of the problem. Mm -hmm. You can't find, you can't search for a solution that you don't recognize the problem that you created. The men and women that was denied opportunities for education while they was in prison, when they was doing just fine with taking and proceeding from remedial program to, to higher education and coming back into society, and being able to change their lives, you disrupted that through your policies. And now they're taking a look at men and women who have been warehoused that now return back to society as though somebody else, something else was responsible for that. You mm. were responsible for that. Yeah. You was responsible for that. And then you had the damn nerves to take these men and women when they come out and you want to take and have them to help you campaign. You want to have them to help you take and, and, and get out to vote, to tell people how important it is to vote, and but you don't want to hear their voice other than to have them to give a sad story, but don't give us any solutions. Any solutions you give us, it sound anti-police. Exactly. It sound anti-society. It sound anti-government. Well, that's what government was to itself. That's what it was to its people. It was anti-humanity. 
Okay, so don't pretend that the person that that, that received the uh, uh, um the experience of a uh, 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 um of having his or her constitutional rights denied, don't expect them to sound like a member of your party. Right. Right. And the fact that you refer to them as being anti-police or anti-social, uh, 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 um, anti-whatever, well, then so what? So the hell what? That's right. <laughs> what do I suppose to love after that? After you <laughs> took more children in the United States than all, the rest of the world has locked up children, you took more than all the world together and locked up children in this nation mm -hmm. what do you expect that child to be pro what mm -hmm. what do you expect that child to be pro what so the take and try to throw labels at the child that's now an adult that now has a voice for his or herself is not a solution mm -hmm. it's not a solution to take and have that child work in your county jail or to have that child work down at your courthouse, or to have that child work anywhere independent of his or her own ideas about what justice is. Justice ain't what he or she experienced. And you don't have a damn solution. To take and run around and talk about um, prison gerrymandering when you was at the ham, when those same prisoners was being sent into another community, like you were sending slaves out of off of your um out of your African village into the white man's village, and now you worried about whether or not he got some extra um tokens for them. <laughs> the only thing you was concerned about at the time was your political ideologies. Mm -hmm. Your political ideologies say lock them up and throw away the key. Mm -hmm. And the other guy seen value in that which you were throwing away and locking up the key, and he and she took them. And say, hey, and give us the tax dollars you used to get for them. And now you're saying, file, file, file. We want our political uh, uh, um, count back. We want our political representation back. But I could give a damn about your political rep representation. How about my damn resources? I'm talking about resources, not any damn number to take and, and, and fortify your numbers in Congress or any damn place else. You wouldn't represent me there in any in any numbers that you had. Why in the hell do I want to reinforce your numbers? I'm not interested in your damn numbers. I'm interested in the resources that these men and women need to return back to society, whether they are resources for mental health, whether they are resources for dental health, whether they are resources for old age, because that's where you left them at. You took them in there as children, and now they done returned back as senior citizens. And the only thing you can talk about is some representation. You didn't represent them before you sent them away. Mm -hmm. I can give a damn about you, your representation, any damn where. And don't ask me to take and sign a petition to support someone that put me there. You are out of your damn mind. You have no idea about what you done did when you take and make such a proposal to people who have come home from prison and ask them to sign a petition to put your candidate. And your candidate is running around talking about, I was part of every crime package 
that ever existed. He's taking credit for my mm-hmm. absence out of your damn community. And I'm the first damn person that you asked to sign a petition to put his dumb ass back in office. You as as dumb as he is. You are as dumb as she is. Okay? So if you haven't heard my take on your representation, you just got it. Use a damn dumbass, whether you are an elephant or a damn jackass. You are damn crazy if you think I really give a damn. Thank you. I know that's right. And then here go my other take, too. They have these people marching around with them and saying how, you know, since they've been incarcerated and they don't even, you know, uh, wrongfully convicted and they they just feel, you know, like they're um, so great and they're, they're forgiven. Like that's a badge of honor. That's not a badge of honor because I don't, I'm not angry at you for sending me somewhere. I didn't do anything uh, 10, 15 years. No, that's how I had to cope to get out of there and to get my life together. But when they're doing this, doing the, um, doing their cycles of um, getting ready to try to get your vote, they have these people parading them around and talking about, you know, how wonderful they are and how they're not angry at the system. They are. Ask their family members all the money that they spent, all the time, all the things that they they went through. Ask them how great they feel. I will tell you, they're not walking around here so happy with you. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when you eyes put on these faces let me go to the video um lisa riley sent me this video you guys and i really i need everybody to watch this okay um here you go i would like to make a plea to anybody that hears under the sound of my voice to help us inmates need in the alabama department of corrections is is more than unreal more than unrealistic if I begin to tell you about certain um, forms of um, brutality, death, beatings, brutalizations, um, inhumane, deplorable treatment of certain staff members when dealing with inmates, and the courage they have when, when they do it, it is unreal. The boldness they have when they do it, the protection that their supervisors give them when they do it, when they kill it, and they and they try to correct paperwork and justify certain actions by staff members or guards, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And when you've been doing something so long, like correctional officers in the state of Alabama, it's hard to break a practice. I heard Kay Ivey, our governor, say that the feds don't need to get in her business where the DOC is out of control, it's beyond repair, and evidently she doesn't realize it. The last two homicides, just the last two, there's been many in the last 36 months, but just the last two, uh, this year at one prison, William E. Donaldson Prison, where they 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 use what's called a modern-day form of corporal punishment. They beat inmates into submission. They kill inmates. Two have got killed this this year alone. Um, Victor Russo and his other brother just got killed, which is a mental health patient, a, a person suffering from mental illness. 
who stuck his head through a trace lot door, a trace lot door where they feed, stuck his head through and yelled at the officer and the officer turned his door through the cubicle operating system and rolled the door while his head was stuck in the tray though and he couldn't pull it back. And it choked him to death and he died and he hollered, he screamed, unmerciful at the time of his death. This is unreal. What kind of inhumane human being better yet a correctional officer we'd expect certain heinous crimes to be committed by inmates what kind of inhumane act would be carried out by a correctional guard attention the doc is the adoc alabama department of correction is broken the death rate just this year alone 16 16 deaths that's count combined murders and and, and overdoses Last year alone, 20 deaths at one facility, William E. Donaldson, where the homicides, the two homicides just occurred this year. We need help. We need immediate help. It's very urgent. And it's no time to waste. Inmates are dying, and they are dying through brutalized, unimaginable ways. Um, his name is... Bernard Jamison, and he's in the Alabama uh, state, one of their prisons in the state of Alabama. But Trisha, um, when you hear that, and, and and I know that you know we've been protesting up there here on Valley. These things are going on all over, and. They're being left on deaf ears. The murders, the the rapes, the and and we'll normalize it by saying, well, you shouldn't have did a crime, and you wouldn't be in prison, and it wouldn't happen to you. That's how we normalize that. But do that make it right? Is that an excuse that for that to happen? I mean, he's risking himself on that phone just to put that message, that video out. I don't know, you guys. I am just horrified listening to that. Um, and I... I, I I just guess I don't understand where the outrage is. Where, where's the advocacy? Where's the fight? I look at the last time we went to Huron Valley it was probably 15, 20 of us. What, like the onus of freedom ain't on my back. It's on all of us. Mm-hmm. And unless we start to really pay attention to what that brother said what the sisters and siblings and women's here on Valley said, we're going to continue to see this. It's not enough for you to sit at home and be like, oh, my God, that was so horrible. And then go cook dinner. Like, you can't do that. Well, I mean, you can clearly, right? <laughs> right. You make the choice over and over again to ignore. But let me say, if you do that, how can you? How can we ignore the cry and the voice of those who are suffering behind those walls and, and watch them be traumatized and then expect them to come home 
without the trauma, mm-hmm. come home without the baggage of the pain that they have suffered from being incarcerated because we've just thrown them away, not even realizing the trauma that they had in their lives before they even went in there. Mm-hmm. All of these things, it's going to be on us. We keep saying it. Nobody's coming. Nobody's coming to save us. Nobody gives a damn because if they did, these problems would not be like they are. But it's going to take all of us who do give a damn to do something about it because this this is not going to get it. This is not going to get it. So you had 20 murders in one facility in a, in a year. You It doesn't make the news because it's prison, right? Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't make... But then if you hear about 20 murders in a weekend, it's on all day, all week. And all so week. It, it's our mindsets, you know, how we, it shouldn't be, um, it's okay for one area and not okay for some, it's not okay, period. Exactly. Yeah. And so we have the human, where's the humanity? Yeah, and, and you know what? We're we're expecting humanity from people who are not known for even practicing humanity. Right. You know, and, and what this brother was talking about is not it is not like it is an unknown fact. It is horrifying the conditions and the treatment in the southern states. Mm-hmm. And they know about it. They know that the officers are killing black people and people of color and people who are mentally ill and people who are already underserved in the community that they know the numbers, but what they did, what they did was they made it so that the federal government could not put, uh, interfere on a federal level (laughs) that, that, that would be up to the state. So what they did was to take the Jim Crow laws and stop the Jim Crow and put it in the prison system. Jim Crow became the prison. Mm-hmm. And so they are killing people in prison and they have a habit and a, a thrill of killing and making it so that it's always a person outside of themselves who is the reason for what is going on. They are, and, and and don't get me wrong, listen, I'm not saying all Caucasian people. I'm saying a system because some of those officers are black. Mm-hmm. Okay, don't get me, don't, don't get it twisted. Just because you are probably the same complexion that I am, you may have the same melanin. That does not mean that you have the same love for humanity as I do. Right. And so it is, it is a, it's a mindset that some people have adopted and have said that it's okay to kill. You have killed. You've killed. And you are not, you are not a follower of Christ. You're not a follower of Buddha. You're not a follower of anybody that is that uh, of of uh Allah, you're not God's chosen when you kill. Right. You are a disgrace. 
And this system disgraces interwoven into our entire system. And until we abolish the whole system, until we get, we had to abolish slavery, but we really did a transfer. Mm-hmm. And that's why we can't, we can't fix it because at its core, it's evil. And at its core, it's disgusting. And at, at its core, it kills. And at its core, it dehumanizes. So get rid of it. Mm-hmm. None of it. All of it stinks. Yes, Ramatea. I got one more, you guys. In the District Court of El Paso County, Texas, 409th Judicial District, the state of Texas versus Daniel Villegas, number 940D09328. Verdict form B. We, the jury, find the defendant, Daniel Villegas, not guilty of... was then uh 16 years old this is the one i want you guys to see an 83 year old man convicted of killing his wife more than 40 years ago is getting a second chance to convince the court that he did not do it isaiah andrews was granted a new trial after evidence surfaced showing prosecutors withheld information about a possible second suspect in this case news 5 investigator scott knoll was in the courtroom and talked with andrews today To put this in perspective, the Justice Center didn't even open until a year after Isaiah Andrews was convicted of murdering his wife. Now the 83-year-old is back in court here, fighting to clear his name. Isaiah Andrews in a wheelchair, fighting cancer, and fighting after 46 years behind bars for freedom. You ask yourself, this is America. How could my fellow man? Andrews convicted of the September 1974 murder of his wife, Regina Andrews. Investigators say she was stabbed 11 times, found dead near a parking lot of the Forest Hills swimming pool in Cleveland. For more than four decades, Andrews sat locked up for the murder until an appeals court in 2019 found prosecutors failed to tell Andrews' defense team police originally considered another man responsible for the crime. That second suspect now dead. Last year, a judge ordered Andrews released from prison to await trial again for the murder. Despite the deaths of six of the prosecution's original witnesses and missing pieces of evidence, the case now moving forward. Yes, it's not ideal to be retrying this case years later, but uh, there's been no showing uh, that any evidence was destroyed in bad faith or that any evidence with apparent exculpatory value uh, has been lost. Andrews says in his heart he knows he didn't commit the crime. He says he just wants justice. His defense attorneys, steadfast in their belief, Andrews is innocent, saying the decision by prosecutors to retry the case without any physical evidence linking him to the crime doesn't make sense. Whatever their interest is, I don't know, but it's gross and it's disgusting. But I assure you, this team is prepared 
We're bringing this trial for Isaiah Andrews. We asked Prosecutor Michael O'Malley's office about the decision to retry this case 46 years later. In a statement, a spokesperson told us this is a pending matter and declined to comment further. In Cleveland, I'm News 5 investigator. Yeah, so Mr. Andrews was retried in October last year. Um, they figured out that uh, they exonerated him from the crime. And um, he died last month. Um, right before they were going to um, back to court to um, so he can sue. And, you know, he died. And so 46 years. So we're talking about, you know, a system of putting innocent people in prison with no accountability, um, no nothing. And so that's why we come here on Fridays. I have to reiterate this. <laughs> that's why we come here on Fridays to not only educate, to share to strike these conversations so you guys can understand that this is not um, something that is, you know, happened to one person or two. This is a whole system that needs to be dismantled. And that's not justice. It's not that's not justice. justice. No. It's not justice if when when people serve time and then you let them out and then years have passed that's not justice because whoever did that was still at large and never never was caught never did anything that's not justice when they're not able to raise their families or be with their loved ones and and his wife died and was killed that's not justice and, when he and said, so what kind of system and you want to say just follow follow the system believe in the system do you trust the system no because i don't trust the people at the helm of the system right why are, you we are incompetent oh lord Jesus. ignorant hateful non-spiritual yes so when he said, adjectives I've had, right? I'm happy on the prayer, Lord help me. He said, why would my fellow man do this to me? Because he wasn't a fellow man. Exactly. He was three-fifths less than a man, okay? Yes. That's why all this is going on. They can say they ratified that all they want. They didn't ratify that in their hearts or in their minds. And that's why they still treating us like that to this day. It's sick. It's sick. And, and one more thing. Why are we trusting an agency that was founded on being slave catchers? Yes. <laughs> I don't, so I, I miss me. With, I, I'm sick of all that. I ain't saying all police are bad. I'm saying the foundation of policing is rotten to the core. Yes. Yes. And I have, you know how, this is the perfect, thank you, Holy Spirit, perfect example. You know how sometimes you can cut into the apple mm -hmm. and you're cutting around and it looks so pretty on one side 
And then you cut that other side and it's this nasty brown stuff. And you like, what the well, me, I tossed the whole apple. Because yeah. in my opinion, if it's rotten on one side, then the effects of the rottenness is on the other side. Now that's just me, right? But we got to stop saying that. Oh, we've got some good, you can say you got some good police all you want, but if that foundation is still rotten to the core, we in trouble. Mm-hmm. Not just folks that's locked up, not just people that commit crimes, all of us. Because people that don't commit crimes get locked up all the time. That's why we here every Friday because these wrongful convictions and it's sick. Hey, let me let me share this with you guys. And I normally come on here and I'm I done been on this show numerous of times. And I normally only focus on advocating for others. And I only mention I think my own case probably once before. <clears throat> and since I shared some particulars with you guys of my case, um I I come to find out that the prosecutor's star witness in my case, which I took in, you know, I I I, I hold that that person didn't testify against me truthfully, and that there was um some evidence that he himself may have actually committed the crime well since i'm i share some of the particulars of my own case with you guys on a on a um, show months ago i found out that that guy is in a prison in, in in indiana and he's not serving life for one murder not for two murders but for three or more homicides okay mm. Three or more homicides. These are the type of peoples that they use as witnesses against others. Okay. And I, I only found that out, you know, uh, within the last several months that the very witness, you know, um, that literally he, he tried to commit suicide while he was um, in um, doing a remission um, from the stand when he was testifying against me. He literally tried to kill himself. And they literally put, brought him back out of the bullpen and put him back on the stand. And why he had evidence of um, trying to hang himself around his neck, why the evidence was still evidence on his neck, he testified against me. And they was fine with that testimony. They were very fine with that testimony because he had changed his tune. He was saying what they wanted him to say. And I wonder what the peoples in Indiana, whoever's um, life he's responsible for now, the three homicides, and these are different homicides. It's not no one case, okay? <laughs> so, um, and, and, and it's not funny, but this is the, this is the damage that comes out right. of these type of um, convictions that they take and sustain time and time again right and then you're right because the original victim never gets closure because then they find out the person that they believe that committed the crime did not so there's another injustice and then then there's another second person who's been met with injustice and then the original person is off to do whatever because of somebody wanted to lie or somebody wanted to you know withhold evidence all kinds of little things it just creates a cycle of 
victims. And yeah. if you did your job correctly, like it was supposed without your biases and judgments and all that other stuff, or you know, worried about your career or your advancements, it would lead a cycle of victims. So you create more harm than good. Yes, yes. And J Love, the gentleman, one of the two gentlemen that was in control of my case, he 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 teach police academies nationally, okay. <laughs> in Chicago and other places of the country. This is one of the gentlemen that handled that witness, that secured that perfect testimony from this witness in my case that I'm telling you that is now serving three homicides in Indiana. This gentleman that helped secure that testimony is teaching other polices in academies across this nation. Just so to he, that you know, we got the finest. Right. Finest. We, so he's going around planting more bad seeds all over the United States. Go ahead, Tony Hugo, man. See, in addition to what everybody else is talking about, um, it is not as hard to convict somebody as people are led to believe. Yes. Okay? We have structurally uh, the greatest criminal jurisprudence in the history of the world. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. Structurally, we do have it. But that's just like having a multi-billion dollar airplane and you got somebody who just got out of flight school at the control. Okay? Mm -hmm. That is a blueprint for disaster. Right. The, the plane is only as good as the competence of people flying it. Mm -hmm. If you have an incompetent at that pilot seat, there's an inevitable outcome. It's called a crash. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's called a crash. And see, part of the problem that we have, and even in our own communities, in our own mm -hmm. community, well, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to say this, skip it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat nothing. In our black community, we're with our own black people. Mm -hmm. Sitting on juries is that innate belief. And I confront this all the time and have judges slam me down all the time for being aggressive with a, 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 a prospective juror. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Mack, you know, that question was asked to the panel in, in, in Bonk. You don't need to micro go in mm -hmm. on their racial exposure. Um, you know, Black people they associate with, uh, what they see about Black people um, on the news. Uh, uh, um, which say uh, lauding black people for their athleticism, you know, playing mm -hmm. football, uh, basketball, you know, uh, running track, like you would laud a racehorse at the Kentucky Derby. You see what yes. I'm saying? And 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 limiting your analysis of them, not as a human, but really more of an animal, really a gifted, talented, showbred animal. And 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 the problem that I routinely, chronically come into is getting people to understand when you go back in that jury room, nobody knows what you're saying. Nobody can control what you do. And I appeal to at least, and I, I do it all the time. I paint one person that I have recognized throughout that trial that I think is really paying attention. And, 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 and I get the feeling in my spirit that they are in fact there to do the right thing under the law. I paint that person in a box 
And when I'm talking to that jury, I'm really looking at them because that is the one person, and, and sometimes there's two, sometimes there's two, but no more than two, that I believe will get in that jury room and say, now, wait a minute, damn it. We are supposed to determine if the guilt has been shown beyond any reasonable doubt on each and every element of the offense. People coming in, well, you know, I remember my car got broken into and they never found who did it, you know, and well, hell, you know, I mean, how, how, how do you get this man's CD in, in, in his presence? Could be a lot of reasons why that happened. We don't know. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you believe as a certain as you know your name, because I believe we all know our names beyond any reasonable doubt, that this person is guilty in each and every element of the offense. And the problem is, the problem is, if I can't paint that one or two jurors, it is a slow process of guilty. Because I've had so many trials where I know in my heart, I know I'm somewhat prejudiced at times, but I said, they don't have the elements here beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, there's a hunch, you know, say, well, yeah, well, well, yeah, they probably did it or, or clear and convincing they did it, but that's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest legal standard in the world, in the world, okay? So what I'm saying is part of the problem is people come into these juries with that Oprah Winfrey, uh, you know, let's let's talk that, that, that Dr. Phil, you know, that Maury Povich bullshit, excuse my language, you know, you know, what they mind and somebody makes a snarky statement. Yeah, he did it. Yeah, he was cheating on that B or, you know, that H, she was cheating on him. Guilty. And that's what I encounter all the time. Yeah, um, I believe that that uh, attorney who go mad. Because I, I experienced that with Gerard. Um, the lawyer was like, okay, we, you know, she felt the same way. There was a high reasonable doubt. And, you know, when they went back there, you know, and the things they were asking, the questions they were asking, and they like, you know, they felt that it was going well in his favor until they came out and gave their, you know, their verdict. So, yeah. I don't know. And see, that goes back to mindset again and consciousness. And so we have to work on, that's an individual thing. And so we have to just bring the noise, bring um, the information so people, so it can soak into their consciousness because some of this stuff is birth. Um, some people are raised with these biases and it's hard to shake when that's how you, you know, you're raised. I remember I told the story before about the little boy and I was, uh, managing a store and he came in with his mother, the little white boy. And he said, my mom, and I said, hello. He said, my mom told me not to speak to the brown, to the brown people. And so, and he looked like he was about five years old. If that old. So when you're raised like that, and then it's hard, you know, it takes, you know, us um, showing up every day as, you know, what it is that we want to seek. That's right. We have to do that. And then, you know, the more we do that, the more it spreads. 
So I thank you guys for, you know, this conversation today. Do Ramatia, do you want to say anything before we go into the network? You can go after that. Yeah, I, I just want to encourage people. You know, this was a hard conversation today because and, and it is hard. <laughs> we got to recognize that this conversation is not an easy conversation to have within our own community and outside the community. However, we need to have the conversation. We have to keep having the conversation because we all need to heal from this. And we got to get beyond looking at the people who are brown and black and whatever color you will, anything that is within the underserved community. And, and stop saying that, you know, well, that's their problem. They're, they're traumatized. It's uh, the generational trauma. And I get that. However, that's not an excuse for this to continue to happen. Mm -hmm. And where do we start? There are answers and solutions. Mm -hmm. And you can be a part of the answer and solution, just like Trisha said. And you can. Right. But turning away and acting like it's not prevalent, that's not a solution. Mm -mm. Edward? I received a, um, a text message last night where someone was bringing to my attention that a gentleman that had been wrongfully um, convicted and incarcerated that had been released, his attorney happened to be in the courtroom recently and seen the officer in the courtroom. And he inquired to the officer that he had wrongfully um, that they used the confession and other evidence that wrongly convicted his client um, as to what discipline he received. And the guy took and told him he hadn't received any discipline because he hadn't did anything wrong. And, and the, and the um, attorney didn't remember the facts that way. And he, as he remembered the facts, the um, Wayne County prosecutor and others had filed a complaint and it acknowledged <clears throat> that this officer had committed a misconduct to secure a warrant that led to this um, person's um, arrest, trial, and wrongful conviction. And, but this is an example. Uh, and some of these guys that have been wrongfully convicted, they need to take up crusades against those who have been responsible. You know, it's their responsibility that's a person that puts you in prison. You now have the momentum behind you. You are coming out. Instead of taking and trying to emphasize that you are not bitter or angry, you should put emphasis on that person's name, their identity, who they are, you know, and exactly um, what they did. Um, I know some of you guys are taking the advice of your attorneys not to say anything, not to do this and that, because they're trying to secure money for you. Uh, and many times uh, these attorneys are looking out for their own interests and not looking out for your interests or looking out for justice. They're looking out for some money. They're looking out for some money where the harm is continuing. The officer who this gentleman sent me the name of, I recognize the name because one of the last persons who case that I worked on before I left prison involved it this same officer. 
and I recognized the other individual who case I had worked on. I found his case in the law library, just like I found over half a dozen other cases where this officer had submitted the same evidence. The evidence that this officer submitted was on the pattern of a six-year-old. The stories wasn't sophisticated at all. And I don't accept the prosecutor's claim of exonerating themselves and blaming it on the officer uh, um, himself. They played a part in this. There's nowhere in the world that somebody continue to submit the same documents, just simply changing the names and the dates <laughs> and the times and the places would fool anybody with any level of sophistication. Thank you. Thank you. Trisha. Yes, y'all, excuse my background noise here, but I'm sorry when my clock goes off to walk health as well, and I'm not playing these days. So I know that's right. Um, but I want to say this. I concur with Baraka because our silence around these that keep offending our community makes us complicit. It makes us a part of the problem. I sat through a trial, and I can't, I can't say the, the, the name because I'm banned by the family, but I sat through a trial. And I'm telling you, it's everybody in the courtroom. I sat through the trial. I watched witnesses in a retrial be impeached over and over again. And I watched the judge sit there and like, she was looking like, oh my gosh, you know what's going on here? Said nothing. She had those transcripts of the first trial. She's seen their testimonies and she's seen the lies. Why didn't she call perjury? Why didn't she hold them in contempt? And then I watched in the same trial that <laughs> the witnesses said one thing, but a tape proved another. Now this same tape was withheld from the first trial, all right? So we got the judge. Now that's the prosecution because they're the ones that hold that evidence, right? Then the officer get on the stand and the officer got impeached, okay? And, and, and the officer signed on this report that they picked up two tapes, but in this second trial, first of all, the first trial, no tapes. But in the second trial, one tape came up. But the tape that showed the murder, missing. Officer impeached because she signed for it. But did she get held accountable? No. So now we got the police. This is all on one trial. We got the prosecutors withholding information that would have cleared someone and, uh, and, and it showed that they were innocent. We got the judge ignoring the fact that the witnesses and the police and the prosecutor are alive with no accountability. So the only thing that I gotta say is, we got to hold these folks accountable. We cannot keep sitting here hiding their lies. We can't keep sitting here acting as if, oh, it's good enough that we letting people out. Yes, let folks out, but we got to hold the folks accountable that keep putting them there. Yes, and Attorney Hugo Matt. You know, <clears throat> I remember reading about um, accounts with Christians being fed to the lions, you know, and dissidents 
being fed to the lions and and crucified and uh, stoned, put to the sword and all those things. All those things are true. But it got to the point where people were continually willing to sacrifice their lives for something they believed greater than their carnal life. You know what I'm saying? I look at King, I look at Malcolm, I look at Medgar Evers, okay? You know, just, just to name a few. And you got to grow in the garden that God plants you in. And so while I support everybody on this panel, the, the, the different venues that we're fighting in, the garden that God has planted me in right now is a courtroom. And so for me, for me, having been brought back from hell to thank you, Lord Jesus, my fight is going in that courtroom every day and slapping the S out of some prosecutor and judge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, okay, you know, oh, hey, hey y'all, and, and if they start disbarment proceedings on me next week, y'all better be careful with me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'd be out there protesting with the <laughs> I appreciate you, sister. You know what I'm saying? That's my job, okay? And my job is to run the risk, as has happened to me many, many, many times. You know, Mr. Mack, any more from you on that, there's going to be a mistrial and other consequences to you. Many, many, many times. I just don't talk about it. I just don't talk about it. And what I'm saying is, I'm not saying I'm special, but I'm saying that all of us have our gardens and in every garden there are rocks okay and i'm saying every time i step in the courtroom i'm picking up a rock and i'm throwing it damn straight i'm throwing it damn straight i'm throwing it i'm throwing it at anybody who i perceive as lying anybody who's coming there with a cultural bias anybody who's coming there with a bullshit excuse me my language trumped up charge against somebody anybody uh in my own community that's too punk ass to stand up and say, man, look, I was there. He didn't do that, man. He didn't do that. But so damn scared, if you speak up, they're going to jump on you. Well, I'm castigating you, too, because you you a main reason the problem exists. You know, if it hadn't have been for Uncle Tom Traders, they never would have caught Nat Turner. Never would have caught him. See, he was turned in, you see what I'm saying, by the House Negroes. So, But anyway, anyway, so what I'm saying is I pray for you and pray for me that in our venues, we, we throwing rocks, okay? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I read about a boy named David who threw a rock at a big-ass giant and took him <laughs> down. So I'm telling you, my my belief in my life, before God calls me out of this realm, I'm going to throw a rock, and I'm taking one of them son of bitches down. Excuse <laughs> my language, so that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> Thank you, Tony Hugo, Matt. <laughs> you know what? We, yeah, we the change that we're looking for. And so it's going to take each and every one of us to, we don't need, like Trisha said earlier, somebody else. We can do, make the change happen. All we have to do is believe. Right. So thank you guys. Um, next week, it was supposed to be this week, but next week we're going to have Adua Hakeem. And we're going to be talking about understanding your Miranda rights. Which is and Terry stops, which is going to be uh, it's summertime, and you know everybody gonna be ha start hanging out in your cars. This is something that you need to not miss. Attorney Hugo Mack, 
is going to have a lot to say about that. So check in with us next week, you guys. And to also to learn more about um, Gerard's wrongful conviction story, please go to change.org uh, slash justice for Gerard. Please sign and share the petition. And until next Friday, be safe out there. And we will see you uh, again. Peace and love. No knocking on my door.